What's up, everyone, and welcome back to the Random History Podcast. Today, I'll be resuming my series on the Thirty Years' War, and I will start by covering the Bohemian Revolt. As I previously mentioned in my last podcast, at the end, soon we saw the ascension of a Catholic prince slash king to the throne to the leadership of a nation which had a lot of protestant nobles and soon enough we saw all these bohemian estates rise up against him and to go back real quick emperor matthias well emperor matthias was the current king or was the current king of bohemia but by 1617 Ferdinand was elected the bohemian estates to become their crown prince and then upon the death of matthias the next king and when he was the so-called king-elect, ends up sending the, his two Catholic counselors to, as his representatives to Prague Castle in May of 1618. He basically like, okay, well, I'm gone. Administer my government for me. But uh, by the 23rd of May that same year, an assembly of Protestants ended up seizing them and then throwing them and also a secretary out of the palace window, which is somewhat some 56 feet off the ground. Somehow they survived, and this is known as the second administration of Prague. Yes, that's happened before. There's actually three major incidents where people were thrown out windows in Prague, and they started the Bohemian Revolt, and soon enough, this con- all this Bohemian conflict would spread throughout pretty much the entirety of the Bohemian crown. We got Bohemia, Silesia, both parts of Lusatia and Moravia, and the thing turns that Moravia was already embroiled in a religious conflict between the Catholics and the Protestants, so this made it worse, and soon enough, this would spread across the whole continent of Europe. Thing to know is that the Bohemian Revolt could have remained a local conflict that would have ended pretty shortly, in le- but the death of Emperor Matthias ended up emboldening the, the Protestant religious who had actually been on the verge of a settlement with the, cr- with the throne. In addition, the weaknesses of Ferdinand and the Bohemians themselves, of both sides essentially, led to this led to this war spreading to Western Germany. Thing to know is that Ferdinand ended up actually calling upon his cousin, King Philip III of Spain as an, for assistance, and at this point, the Spanish crown had an interest in maintaining the Holy Roman Empire as a stable ally, as they had a critical trade route, the Spanish road extending from the Mediterranean to Brussels. Based on this, then, that in order to support this idea of maintaining the Holy Roman Empire stability, they ended up investing a ton of money in the hiring soldiers. This fight ensued enough. The Bohemians realized that they needed allies, too, and were pretty desperate. They ended up applying to be admitted into the Protestant Union, which I previously mentioned was this defense organization. And they, this was led by their original candidate, the guy they wanted to become the head of the Bohemian throne. The Protestant Union was basically had, was led by the guy they wanted to be the real king, but they wanted to be their king of Bohemia, the Calvinist Frederick V, who was the elector of Palatine. And they, the Bohemians essentially hinted that, oh, Frederick, if you, if you help, if you let us join your union, you will become the king of Bohemia. However, they made a similar detail. They made similar promises. No, other members of Bohem- the Bohemian estates made similar promises to the Duke of Savoy, the Elector of Saxony, and the Prince of Transylvania. And the Austrians, who ended up somehow intercepting every single letter leaving Prague, made all of this made this public. And this ended up unraveling much of their support. And and and, and even James the first of England ended up refusing to support Frederick, even though Frederick was married to his daughter. And soon enough, England would actually become overall inactive in the war. And just, and in spite of these issues, however, the rebellion was initially favoring the Bohemians as much of Austria revolted in joining them, as they were their nobility was also chiefly Lutheran and Calvinist. And Lower Austria soon enough revolted as well. 
However, the revolt would eventually be defeated, and we see the Spanish sent an, send an army from Brussels under the man who had previously led their conquest or their conflict in the Netherlands to support the emperor. In addition, the emperor, or no, the ambassador to Vienna persuaded Protestant Saxony to intervene against Bohemia for control of Lusatia. In addition to paying a bit of money to help the Spanish army, or to pay off the to pay the Spanish mercenaries. If the Saxons soon invaded in, in the West, the Spanish army ended up keeping the Protestant Union from assisting, and soon enough, the Spanish ambassador also trans, transpire, conspired to transfer the electoral title from the Palatinate to the Duke of Bavaria in exchange for that, in exchange for this, that, in exchange for his support in that of the Catholic League. And soon enough, the Catholic League army, which had a pretty big force as they had a bunch of states together, pacified Upper Austria while imperial forces would take pacify. Lower Austria, with Austria essentially pacified and out of the way, these two armies would unite and march into northern, march north into southern Bohemia. Sorry, and at this point, Ferdinand II would decisively defeat Ferdinand V at the Battle of White Mountain near Prague, and this would lead to Bohemia becoming almost entirely Catholic and remaining in Habsburg hands for nearly three hundred years. And this defeat would lead to the dissolution of the League of Evangelical Union and Frederick V losing a lot of his holdings, and his of territories being given to Catholic nobles. In addition, his title of elector would be given to his cousin, the Duke Maximilian of Bavaria, and soon enough, Frederick would make him, who is now landless, would made himself essentially a exile abroad and just try to curry support for his cousin of a bunch of nations, and this was a pretty significant blow to Protestant ambitions in the region. As soon enough, the widespread confrontation of property suppression of the Protestant Bavarian nobility basically caused them to lose this Bohemia as a Protestant region, and this weakened the Protestant Union. And after and after the Bohemian Revolt can occurred, we now see this conflict really start to get pretty bad. And soon enough, we would see something known as the Palatinate Campaign happen. And by abandoning Frederick, a lot of those German princes hoped that they could restrict or was dispute dispute to Bohemia, but. Maximilian, who had who's already known to have some pretty dynastic ambitions, made this impossible. As by the the October sixteen nineteen treaty of Munich, Ferdinand he's basically like, I will trans. Ferdinand agreed that he would transfer the Palatinate's electoral vote to Bavaria and allow him to up annex the Upper Palatinate. And many Protestants did support Ferdinand because they they objected to deposing the legally ejected king, but of. Bohemia, and they were, but they also opposed Frederick's removal on the same ground, and this soon enough turned this conflict into a conflict contest between imperial authority and German liberties, and the Catholics also had a good chance to regain land lost since fifteen fifty five, and the combination of this ended up destabilizing large parts of the empire, and the importance of the Palatinate, which I previously mentioned, was in, was very close to that Spanish road due to external powers, and by August of sixteen twenty, the Spanish would occupy the Lower Palatine. And James would respond to this by this attack on his son-in-law, the English king, of course, James, would send naval forces to threaten the Spanish possessions around the world. And he announced that he would not, he would declare war if Spain did not withdraw troops by spring. They told us that this actually gained him some support from the Protestants domestically as they like, oh, look. We thought that you, when you were hoping the Spanish were being pro-Spanish, that was betraying us, but now you're against them. That's good. Thank you that interestingly, or not interestingly, but I would say more thankfully for several parties involved, 
the Spanish chief minister basically like, oh yeah, he correctly interpreted it as like, oh look, they're requesting that we, that we open negotiations, so they end up doing this little alliance. And in return for this alliance between England and Spain, they offered to return Frederick to his Rhineland possessions. However, since Frederick basically demanded full restitution of all his lands and titles, this was incompatible with the Treaty of Munich, this basically was for that a hope, the hope of reaching the peace quickly evaporated, and soon enough, in 1621, the 80 Years' War restarted. So the Dutch promised Frederick military support to regain his lands, along with a mercenary army under Mansfield, paid for with English subsidies. And over the next 18 months, we would see both Spain and the Catholic lead win many victories, and by 1620, November of that year, they would control most of the Palatinate, with the exception of mainly Frankenthal, which was held by a small little English garrison. By 1623, the Imperial Diet would meet again early February, and at this point, Ferdinand forced through several provisions which essentially gave him Frederick's land, gave, no, not him, but gave Maximilian Frederick's titles, lands, and electoral vote, and he did this through his support from the Catholic League, despite a lot of opposition, both the Protestant League, Protestant members, and the Spanish. At this point, the Palatinate was basically lost. In March, King James ended up surrendering Frankenthal, and soon enough, military operations were complete. However, why this area, this sect of the war, this section of the war was complete. Spanish and Dutch involvement in this campaign would prove to be significant in internationalizing the war, and the removal of Frederick meant that many Protestant princes began discussing armed resistance in order to keep themselves and their territories in power. And soon enough, we'd see the Danish step in, as currently, at this point, Saxony dominated both the upper Saxon circle and Brandenburg, with the, as Saxony, sorry, I have a hiccup, as Saxony dominated the upper Saxon circle and Brandenburg the lower, but they were both neutral during the campaigns in Bohemia and the Palatine, but after Frederick was deposed in 1623, the man in Saxony and the guy in charge of Brandenburg both feel that Frederick would intend to reclaim the former bishoprics that were currently held by all these Lutherans, and this was essentially their fears that were seemingly confirmed when a, the Catholic League army ended up occupying Halberstadt, which was a bishopric. And soon enough, uh, the Christian the Fourth, who was a member of the Lower Saxon Circle, and was also the Danish, was also the Danish leader, one of the Danish power. Basically, one of the people in power in Dan Denmark at this point was a member of the Lower Saxon Circle, and the Danish economy relied on the Baltic trade and tolls from tra traffic. So, in 1621, Hamburg accepted Danish supervision, and his son, Frederick, would become the joint administrator of several different territories, which allowed the Danish to control both the Elbe and Wester rivers. That Ferdinand had paid West Wallenstein for his support against Frederick with a lot of estates that he, that he ended up confiscating from bohemian rebels and in addition he also contracted him to essentially okay conquer the north for me and i will give you a bunch of little territories and thing to know is that by this point the guys in charge or the people the nobles of lower saxony ended up electing christian their military commander and they attempted to negotiate for peace but this failed and the conflict in germany became part of this wider struggle between the france french and their habsburg rivals in spain and austria and in the June 1624 Treaty of Compiègne, this was even worse as the, the French ended up subsidizing, essentially, they would subsidize the war which the Dutch were fighting against the Spanish for at least three years. 
And then under the a treaty of the Treaty of the Hague, which took place in December of 1625, the Dutch and English agreed that we're going to finance the Danish intervention in the Holy Roman Empire. And this was intended to be, and this was intended to be basis like this wider coalition. So they ended up trying to, they ended up inviting a bunch of nations to join, but soon enough, this was overtaken by some other events. And by 1626, the main architect of this alliance ended up facing a pretty big Huguenot rebellion. And and by the March Treaty of Monzon, the, Fr- the French renewed, withdrew from northern Italy, which reopened the Spanish lo- road. And this, the intervention would the intervention in this area would involve a total of three Protestant armies. However, this advance soon fell apart. And at this point, the Danes were comprehensively beaten at Luther, and these armies just kind of dissolved. I think there's that many of the German allies of Christian at this point had little interest in replacing their basically their domination by the empire with domination by the Danish. So basically. In addition to this, a very few of those subsidies that they agreed to pay in the Treaty of Hague were ever paid. And by this point, they were essentially essentially worthless and kind of useless. And soon enough, by the end of 1627, Wallenstein, who was on the Catholic side, had already occupied Mecklenburg, Pomerania, and Jutland. He was making plans to construct a fleet to basically challenge the Danish sea control. And he was supported by the Spanish. And soon enough... By sixteen twenty, by May of sixteen twenty eight, his deputy would besiege Strasland, which is the only port large enough to really, the only port with large had large enough shipbuilding facilities to make his fleet. But this ended up putting his wooden to the war, which would prove pretty disastrous. As at this point, this would make the war even bigger. Gustavus Adolphus, the current leader of Sweden, would dispatch several thousand Scots and Swedish troops to Strasland, and they, which would force them to lift the siege. And he would begin, and at this point, Christian would end up making negotiations with Wallenstein, who was in charge of the Catholic forces, who, in despite of the fact that he just won a bunch of victories, was pretty worried that the, that Swedish events proved pretty disastrous to him, so he's actually pretty anxious to make peace. And at this point, with the Austrians' resources stretched pretty badly, by the outbreak of another war of succession, he was able to persuade Ferdinand to get pretty lenient terms in the... Treaty of 1929 in Lubeck. And at this point, the Christian pretty much relinquished a lot of his possessions in exchange, in exchange for relinquishing two of them and abandoning support for German Protestants. And this would also see Denmark essentially end its reign as the dominant Nordic state. However, the methods used to obtain victory made it so that the war would pretty much fail to end it because Ferdinand basically, once again, paid Wallenstein, like, okay, you can take whatever land, you can loot, you can ransom some cities, you can loot people, and at this point, this happened to both his allies and his opponents, and this led to a lot. This led to more anger, and soon enough, this anger would come to a head as Ferdinand ended up deposing the hereditary Duke of Mecklenburg and appointing Wallenstein in his place, and this ended up, this opposition to this ended up uniting pretty much all the German princes, regardless of what faith they had. Maximilian of Bavaria ended up being compromised by his acquisition of Palatine. And basically now they would be, why they worked somewhat united, there would be a little bit of division over how they, what they would go back to. And at this point, Ferdinand, to be honest, got a little too overconfident in the fact that he'd been pretty successful so far. So by March of 1629, he passed something called the Edict of Restitution, which basically said, basically, all of that land that you took from the Catholic Church since 1555 returned that. And while this was pretty much legal, 
this was not a good idea politically, as this would basically alter almost every state boundary in northern and central Germany. In addition, it would restore Catholicism in areas where it was not a significant presence for around a century. And it would deny the existence of Calvinism. And Ferdinand was pretty much well aware that no prince would agree to this, so he ended up using an imperial edict. And this this was considered to be another assault on German liberties and ensured continuing opposition and undermined success. So I'm going to focus... I'm going to continue... Now I'm going to go on to Swedish intervention. And then I will pause before... And I will come back to this tomorrow and I will resume the series. So, at this point, Swedish intervention was... This is... So Swedish intervention would take place between 1630 and 1635. And this was a pretty big turning point thing to know is that in order to basically put in response to all those attempts by the Holy Roman Empire to essentially kind of prevent and contain the spread of Protestantism in Europe, King, King Gustav II of Adolf of Sweden would lead an invasion, and though he would be killed at Lutzen, the Swedish would still manage to successfully defeat their Catholic enemies and establish themselves as a pretty big power. And this was a pretty big conflict in that the, and essentially... The policy of Riccolo at this point was, okay, I wanted to basically slow Spanish project, and that was the man, one of the pretty big forces behind the throne in France. He's like, okay, my goal, I want to basically slow French Spanish project and protect my neighbors from the Spanish, because I don't want the Spanish getting bigger. And at this point, however, his resources were tied up in Italy. So he ended up negotiating this treaty between Poland and Sweden in 1629, which let Gustavus Adolphus enter the war. Thing to is that he had he actually had dual desires, so he had some religious desire to well support my Protestant, my Protestant friends because I'm also Protestant and also, Sweden got a lot of its money, from this the Baltic trade. And he's like, okay, I want to get more money from it. And at this point, as they had previously already occupied Stralsund, this is a pretty good bridgehead, so they managed to land around eighteen thousand Swedish troops in the Duchy of Pomerania, and he allied himself. With the guy in char- in Pomerania, which made it so that okay, cool, my interests have been secured against the Catholic Polish Lithuanian component, Commonwealth, which was essentially another Baltic competitor, which was linked to him, linked to his op- opponent in Ferdinand. However, he expect there's these there were expectants of widespread support, which pretty much proved to be not realistic at all. As by the end of sixteen thirty, Sweden only gained one new ally. Ma- Magdeburg, which was un- under siege. And the other thing that's known is that despite the fact that both Saxony and Brandenburg had been pretty much devastated by imperial forces, they also had their own ambitions in Pomerania, which clashed with that of Gustav- Gustavus. In addition, that previously... I think they had also had previous experience which showed that, oh, it's pretty easy to get into some outside guys coming to the empire, but getting them to leave is hard. However, once again, Reichelow from France, who has some requisite support... In another treaty back in 1631, he provided funds for the so-called Heilbronn Lead, which was essentially a Swedish-led coalition of all these German Protestant states. And this was around 1 million livers per year, plus an additional 120,000 for 1630. And this is only about 22% of the French budget, made up about 25% of the Swedish budget. And that Gustavus supported an army of 3,600, and he won a lot of major victories. He would win at Breitenfield and at Rain, where he would actually kill Tilly, the enemy general. Thing to know is that he was actually he was very good with the use of new ideas like very good troops. He had something known as these well trained Finnish light cavalrymen known as 
I can't pronounce it, but they were very, very good at cavalry and raiding, and they were just very good in general. And soon enough, after Tilly's death, Ferdinand realized that he needed to get another general, so he turned back to Wallenstein, who, and basically knowing that Gustav had over, Gustavus had overextended himself, he ended up marching into Franconia, stabbing himself at Firth, which led him threaten the Swedish supply chain. And Gustavus ended up losing some heavy losses and his unsuccessful assault of that town. And this is considered to be probably one of the greatest blunders of his campaign. But two months later, the Swedes would win a resounding victory at Lutzen, where Gustavus would be killed. And at this point, there was a lot of rumors that came out that, oh, look, Wallenstein's preparing to switch sides. And in February of 1634, Ferdinand would issue orders for his arrest, and by the 25th of that same month, he'd be assassinated by one of his officers. That's all for today, folks. Thanks for listening, and I will be back tomorrow with a resumption where I will talk about the entrance of Spain into the war. Thanks for listening, y'all. Not the entrance of Spain, the entrance of France into the war, sorry. Once again, thanks for listening. This was the Random History Podcast.